This podcast may contain disturbing content for some listeners. It's intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. This is True Crime XS. I had uh, I had this one piece of true crime news. It was from back around, I think it was Halloween or Thanksgiving that I had read it. It was out of the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. And the article there was written by Bridget Fogarty and someone named D. Quas, uh, like the initial D. Quas for the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. Um, and they actually published the article on October 24th of 2023. And it just said what to know about the cold case murders of Diane Olkwitz and Terry Lee Erdman. That's O-L-K-W-I-T-Z and then Terry, T-E-R-R-I, Erdman, E-R-D-M-A-N-N. I don't know if you heard about this. But the article just reads, law enforcement, we finally have the answers on the murders of 19-year-old Diane Olkowitz in 1966 and 15-year-old Terry Lee Erdman in 1971, so five years apart and a little bit different age. The same killer may be responsible for the two cold case homicides. So according to a search warrant that was unsealed right ahead of this article, which was obtained by the Journal Sentinel, police had dug up a, uh, the body of a man who died in 2008, and they were trying to get his DNA for possible connection to these cases. So before the, and I'm going to, if I mispronounce this, I, I really apologize to people. There's a lot of words here that are kind of crazy to me. Menomone Falls Police Department. So before the Menomone Falls Police Department provides an update on the two cold case homicide investigations, Here's what you need to know. Uh, Diane Olkowitz, who was supposed to give her friend a ride home from work, was found lying in a pool of her blood at, uh, again, Minamani Falls around 5.20 p.m. on November the 3rd, 1966. She had been stabbed more than 100 times. Uh, And according to this uh, article and some of the other stuff I read on this case, Alquitz was found with her her dress like off her shoulders, like somebody had been pulling at it. Uh, And James Welch, who was the Waukesha County coroner at the time, determined that she had not been sexually assaulted. Then in June of 1971, so June 24th, 1971, Terry Lee Erdman's body was found in a field near railroad tracks behind a Moorway department store, which was in the 10,000 block of West Appleton Avenue. That's on Milwaukee's um, like furthest northwest side. And she had been stabbed about 60 times. And when they found her, her shirt had been pulled over her face and she was nude from the waist down. She had only been, she, she was younger than Diane. She was only 15. She had only been missing, Terry had only been missing overnight. The day before, she had been at a friend's house near North 95th and West Rio streets. And she used, according to reports, she frequently used a utility path 
So there was a field that ran block to block and she would cut through like this path that had been made there. And she used it as a shortcut to get to her house, which was on the 10,000 block of West Silver Spring Drive. It's about a mile and a half from the location of her body. Police at the time said that her murder was similar to Diane's murder. I mean, obviously, you've got these blitz overkills, dozens of stab wounds. You've got 60 in the in the Erdman case, and you've got 100 in uh, Diane Okowitz's case. But it was later found that in both cases, there was male DNA that was consistent with sexual assault believed to belong to the person responsible for the homicides recovered. So I don't know how that works. When Diane is found, at the time, it said that she had not been assaulted. But then later on, they come out and they say that there, there was DNA evidence consistent with sexual assault that had been recovered. So I don't know, like, if they didn't know what they were looking for the first go-round or, or what. I always feel like they're just wrong. When they say there was no sexual assault? Right. I, I feel like, well, I, I don't want to say very few cases because um, there's a lot of circumstances where other things could factor in, I guess. But, like, the majority of the time, unless it's just, like, Somebody was shot from a distance, right? Yeah. Let's say that. When you have these like up close and personal murders, most of the time, not all the time, but a lot of the time, uh, they're sexually motivated. Yeah. It used to be people thought it was personal, but I don't necessarily think it's quote personal. Like, like there were people sometimes mistake that as meaning they knew their assailant, the victim did. Is it personal from, you know, the perpetrator's uh, point of view or is it personal from the victim's point of view, right? You would think that this sort of type rage killing. Well, I'm I'm agreeing with you. I think it's more like those type rage killings are more sexually motivated than they are knowledge motivated, whether they know them or not. I think you can say that. You're going to have a really hard time, and I mean you as in, like, the universal you. Uh, it's really hard to find a, lo- a lot of cases where women are, like, physically attacked and killed, and it's not sexually motivated. That doesn't mean that—it could be that, like, with Diane's case, maybe he wasn't able to actually sexually assault her— that that's what I was kind of wondering, and that could be a it number of things. Really give you like all the details there, but when you said that, I was like, "Yeah, that, that doesn't seem right." But I'm sure they had some reason for saying it, right? Well, I, I, I dug into it just in the interest of like not leaving you or anyone else hanging. So this is this is kind of how Diane's story goes down, and this is in a separate Milwaukee Journal article as well that was a few days ahead of this. They were trying to uh, the Bridget, who is one of the writers on this piece, had a separate article that's about four days earlier, still the same topic, and she talks about Diane. This is what she says: she says that Diane was the second daughter in a family of six children. She had two older brothers and she had three sisters. She graduated from the local high school there in 1965, and she was working as a secretary at Kenworth Manufacturing when all this happened. So that uh, there was a metal stamping plant there at uh, 13, 
13,000, somewhere in the 13,000 block of West Silver Spring Drive, and that she worked alone from about 3.30 to 4.30 every day. She would stay, and anybody who was delivering something late, she was the one who would like let them like deliver it, depending on the size of the package, and she would answer phone calls. Now, Debbie Olkowitz is, is she is um, she's quoted in here, but she was just nine when her sister was murdered. She says that her sister was a very warm and, and caring person, and that she was always looking out for other people, and she was very generous. Now, another sister, Patty Sadler, said that they were very close, and she describes Diane as her mentor. And then they briefly touch on Terry Erdman. So Terry, the second victim in 1971, she had just graduated from the ninth grade from Samuel Morse Junior High School. And she was going to be going to James Madison High School for 10th, 11th, and 12th. And she was going to start in September of 1971. Uh, She was described as the quiet kid who had like a, a sweet sense of humor. She was the middle child in her family. So she had an older brother and a younger brother. And she was actually looking through family photos and listening to records with a friend in a neighbor's basement the night that she was killed. So they pull back open these case files. And according to all these affidavits that have been put together for these articles here and some of the search warrants, they had considered Diane's case an active investigation. But with something you talk about all the time, and that is the advancing, the advent of DNA technology and the the advancement of DNA technology. They were able to take some of Diane's articles and send it over to the Wisconsin State Crime Lab. And the Wisconsin State Crime Lab isolated a DNA profile from a girdle undergarment that Diane was wearing. And so what I'm picturing there is like an upper body garment that for some reason they were able to basically find, I think they found semen. They don't specify that, but that's what I'm picturing. They say that it was consistent with a sexual assault. So that makes me think it's not spit. Right. Yeah. Uh, So they create a DNA profile from that piece of evidence. And I'm not sure when they create it. I just know that it's after 2001, they entered into CODIS. And so the idea there was they were going to put it in and look for initially they were actually looking for a suspect or, you know, some convicted killer, but they don't get a match. And as DNA technology evolves, the local police kept that case in mind and they realized uh, that, that the, in the Erdman's case, there was also DNA potentially collected from her body So the Wisconsin State Crime Lab has a report from 2011, and it just notes that there is DNA and it's from a male. Uh, The similarities in these cases were the distance between the killings was quite, they were quite close to each other. Both of the victims were teenage girls and and this fervent, uh, like you said, rage-like stabbing. That caused the detectives on the case to suspect that maybe it could be the same person. So The detectives on the two separate cases, they get together and they submit a request to the Wisconsin Crime Lab to compare, like, rather than going back to CODIS and trying to, like, find this person, just to look at whether this could have come from the same person. So they compare the DNA profiles. And the DNA profiles were consistent with one another. 
So then in July of 2023, last year, the city of Milwaukee had a detective named Tim Keller who he requested a search warrant and he wanted to dig up the body of a man whose DNA was suspected to match the DNA evidence found on both Erdman and Okowitz. And I don't know exactly how they got there and they don't tell us the whole thing, but I found this part interesting. The, this man was a truck driver who would make deliveries to where Diane was a secretary at the Kenworth company. And that's where she was found. Right. She was found at her workplace. Yeah. She was found behind her workplace basically. Right. And so to me, I immediately thought, well, somebody who she at least crossed paths with is responsible for this. Yeah. So the police at the time, way back when they did have his name on a list where they had basically, in the initial investigation of the homicide, they had been knocking out a lot of questions of who could have come in contact with her. And they found that he did a pickup there four days before Diane was killed. So they believed he would have been familiar with the scene of the homicide. Now, this is where it gets out of my depth, so I'll tell you this part and you can explain it to me. In both homicides, they used partial YSTR profiles from the DNA evidence they found, which is, I understand it, that is for... It's a Y chromosome with a short tandem repeat, right? Right. Mm -hmm. So with that, all men who are related up their father's line, paternally? Paternally, yes. They they would share the same YSTR profile. Is that right? That's correct. Okay. So basically any, you know, the mitochondrial DNA is passed through the mother. And so the the YSTR is paternal. And so any male child, which, I mean, if they're looking for semen, it's going to be from a male. Any male offspring of this man uh, would show the same YSTR uh, pattern, I guess, profile. So following that line of thinking, what they did was the investigators on both cases, they reached out to this man who was deceased, to his two adult sons, one of them consented to providing a DNA sample. So comparing that son's DNA with the DNA profiles that came out of the evidence in these two separate homicides five years apart, they felt like what they were looking at was consistent. So whoever the DNA person here, they looked at them and they said, this is very likely from the father of this DNA sample that we can look at. From um, the the child, from the son. From the son, yeah. So, and so to me, that's really interesting because while there's this corroborating information that um, this man did a delivery, right? Yeah. yeah. So that makes it like highly likely that this dude is the guy, right? Uh, because he has a reason to have possibly been there or to have been familiar with the area or to have even just crossed paths with the victim, right? Yeah. But without further information, the entire line, so every single relative who has a father in common, okay? Yeah. Right. So if that guy had brothers who were all paternally related to one another, and if that guy's uh, father had brothers that were paternally related to one another. Do you see where I'm going with this? Yeah. Like, 
it could be very wide if that's the only thing they have to go off of. And so while there's information here that is kind of separate and apart from the DNA evidence in that this guy was a delivery driver who had been at the scene four days prior to her murder, without that information, it's a very vague link unless... Now, these profiles were developed long before I would say that the kind of profile they could get now could be developed, right? Which the kind of profile they could get now would be, you know, they could tell you exactly if it matched or not. But in this case, I feel like it's probably enough, especially they had enough for the profiles from each of the separate crime scenes to match, right? Yeah. At least the YSTR did. And if they have enough for that, um, while just making the paternal link doesn't necessarily, it's not like something I'd get real excited about, especially if there were like, you know, 10 people in this guy's family that all had the same father and they all like were truck drivers that delivered there. Right. I understand what you're saying. Okay. That doesn't, that wouldn't break it down very well. But like in this particular case, the way it's written here, at least, it seems like this is a pretty good indication, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I thought this was going to be interesting. And I, I'm curious uh, if they bring, if they bring this back up um, after this press conference, I will be curious to know if they like matched it all up. Um, Cause I think, you know, that's the whole point of digging them up, right? You exhume the body. Uh, and the idea there is that you're going to make a, a, a more definitive I, match. I didn't see if, they had gotten that approved or not? Well, no, they haven't said that yet. As of like the time okay. that like we we're recording it, I didn't have that information I sitting see. in front of me. But I was going to dig a little deeper, and as because we're kind of we're talking about some some stuff in the in the middle of the country uh, to kick off the new year. So I I thought you know this will probably come back up kind of naturally over the course of a couple episodes. Well, it's interesting because uh, in 2023, going into 2024, they could actually. Uh, without having to dig up the suspect's body, they could actually they could determine if it's a you know a likely match or not because it's very easy to identify parental relationships with uh, their offspring because the well, that's kind of why I was bringing this up. I was wondering why we're still doing exhumations. I don't know unless there's something about because uh, okay, let's think about this. What if there's an uncle? You know what I mean? It still wouldn't matter because the son is going to have roughly 50% of his father's DNA. And he would only have about 25 to 33% of an uncle's. Oh, I see what you're saying. So they would know. Yes, because the only person that you would share a 50% DNA match. Now, it can vary. Like you could have... 54% or you could have 48% um, and that the difference is going to be made up in your other parent. So if I have 54% of my dad's DNA, I'm only going to have 46% of my mom's, right? But to get up into that range of DNA, uh, it's your parent, right? Right, yeah. And so while... 
if it was an uncle, in that situation, the father and the uncle would have both gotten 50% of their DNA from the same two people if they're full siblings, right? Yeah. But in the transference, and I, and I, this isn't exactly, you know, I haven't really looked into this, and I don't know what the maximum amount of DNA you could share with an aunt or uncle really is. Okay, but I do know it's not going to get all the way up to 50%. Unless your uncle is also your father. I'm just saying. Well, if your <laughs> uncle is your father, then that's a whole different story. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just trying to think of wild anomalies that could happen in Milwaukee. Well, in, in that case, you've been lied to. That is Because from a DNA standpoint, like right. if, if your uncle is your father, your father is your uncle. Did we get far enough off of that? <laughs> I think we're wandered off into an area. I have to rein it back in. Weirdly, these two cases, Erdman and Olkowitz, are the case names, Terry and Diane, they take place in two, jur- two different jurisdictions. So technically, Terry Erdman's 1971 murder takes place in Milwaukee as opposed to uh, Menominee Falls. So these police departments had to work together to do all this. Now, they throw in some facts in here that were pretty interesting. Terry Erdman's 1971 murder is the third oldest unsolved murder at the Milwaukee Police Department. There are two older unsolved cases. One is a May 1971 fatal shooting of a cab driver named Riley Campbell. He got killed during, uh, Riley Campbell got killed during a robbery. And the 1969 murder of Stephanie Casper. Uh, In July 1969, she was a waitress at a big boy restaurant on North Van Buren Street, and she went missing. Her dismembered body was found in the Rock River, which is near the Racine County line. Diane's 1966 murder, according to this, is believed to be the first homicide in Menominee Falls Village. Therefore, it is the oldest unsolved case there. Uh, They only have two other unsolved cases on the books. One is from May of 1981, and that's the fatal stabbing of Joyce Gardner. She's 54 years old. She was killed in her home. Uh, April 1988, there's the disappearance of a 20-year-old woman named Sandra Bertolas. She's never been found, and she's considered to be a victim of the homicide there as well. I, I just thought this was an interesting way to sort of kick off the new year. I'm so I have a case. I don't know if you have much more on this one, but this is actually a case that it's actually from last year. I started researching this. I have this massive calendar of episodes. It it was supposed to go on in the summer of 2023, but there were some developments that I was waiting on and I had talked to somebody and they were telling me it was coming and it was coming and it was coming. And I had been told that we would know by like June of uh, 2023, whatever the developments were, Uh, they took forever. And then like the developments started kind of dripping out slowly in the fall of 2023, which is why I had waited on, on the case that we're going to be talking about. Do you have anything else on Diane or Terry? No, not in particular, but it will be, I say cool, but sort of with air quotes because the whole, nothing about this is cool for, you know, the very first homicide in the village uh, for Diane's case to be solved. And then for the third oldest unsolved case in Milwaukee, Terry's case, 
Yeah. Uh, I feel like that's really cool. And I hope that they get, um, now it's funny cause we've, I've run the gamut on this because I've been like, I hope they dug that guy up and made sure like completed the circle on the DNA. And that's just some random case. I, I can't remember what it was, but on, in this case, I don't feel like it was necessary, but I hope that they make, you know, uh, whatever the lab determines to be, you know, a for sure match. Uh, between yeah. whatever they were able to get from the crime scene. And, um, of course, he won't be charged because from everything I can see and the fact that they're using his sons for DNA samples, I'm going to go with he's dead. Based on sort of all that, uh, he won't be charged. Um, I wondered, and then to kind of swing all the way back around and then I'm done, but because it was 19, I wonder if it didn't have something to do with it being 1966. And that's why initially her sexual assault wasn't reported or her case wasn't reported as a sexual assault. One of these days, I'm going to look into this and see where the tide turns because there's a point in time where while it's very clearly a case of sexual assault, uh, in a murder investigation, it's not necessarily reported as one, right? Right. And I feel like uh, the difference between these two cases here, wait, did they say for sure? Yeah, they said Terry had been assaulted, right? They said there was DNA consistent with an assault. It's it's weird. Yeah, okay. So 66 and 71, I would say that... Um, yeah, she was nude from the waist down with her shirt pulled over her face. There's no question that's a sexual assault. Um, otherwise, why bother, right? Well, with well, with Diane, so there are other, and you guys can go read about this in more detail because this is just a news article for today. But uh, Dequaz, he wrote other articles over the last ten years about Diane's case, and he like went into some pretty good detail. He dug up all of the autopsy reports. The reason that she was not like, it's weird. She had a lot of stab wounds. She had stab wounds to her head, her neck, her face. She had rows down the sides of her back and she had been uh, repeatedly stabbed in her stomach. There were defensive wounds on her hands, on her arms. She had a broken nose. And when she was found, her knit dress was pulled up and it had been pulled off her shoulders, but everything underneath that, the girdle and her, I believe her hose and her underwear, uh, it it was undisturbed. So that was the reason they went with, she had not been sexually assaulted. And I think what they mean to say is she had not been penetrated. Like, cause there are other things that could be going on here. Great. Well, penetration is not required for a sexual assault to occur. Correct. And that's kind of what I wanted to point out there. Um, it, but this case is going to be interesting. Um, it, I'm, if it's if it's being closed, I'm excited about that. And that guy is Clarence Mark Tappendorf. Uh, he is the man that local, state, and federal officials, they came to the conclusion, uh, allegedly in December 2021, through the use of DNA evidence and forensic genealogy, that... Clarence Tappendorf was responsible for both of these crimes. Tappendorf was a delivery driver for Claremont Transfer, which included Kenworth, 
which is where Diane lived. And his name was among those submitted to the Minami Falls police, uh, village police in a questionnaire that they sent around to delivery companies at the time. There were no deliveries scheduled the date of Diane's murder, but Tappendorf had made the most recent delivery there four days prior. And on the day that she was killed, Taffendorf made a delivery to a location that was just across the street. Uh, after police identified Tappendorf as Diane's killer, they went back to the case files and they discovered that his name was among the many that had been acquired during this initial investigation they had done. And so basically they used forensic IgG or investigative genealogy to do this. Now, Tappendorf died in 2008 at the age of 80. Um, and then they determined that, how did they do this? They ended up, uh, they um, exhumed him. Right. They exhumed him, but how did they, okay. So, all right. So they, they got a, a search warrant in 2023. They exhumed Tappendorf's body, which was at Holy Cross Cemetery in Milwaukee. And they got basically subject zero DNA samples is what they did, like from the source. And, and it matched the um, homicide uh, profiles. Interesting. Well, so they, I, they concluded that, see? Yeah, they knew. So they already knew it was him. They were just. And so now they've named him. Uh, so that's interesting to me because they wanted to just make completely sure, right? Yeah. And obviously that doesn't bring any answers uh, really because the guy is dead and he was 80 years old. Yeah, he was 80. Wow. So he killed a 15-year-old? So how old was he in 1971 then? Well, that sounds like work. 2008 would have been Hold 37 on, years. He would have been 43 years old. Like I said, he killed a 15. That That's weird to me. So, so when he, all right. So he kills Terry. He's 43 years old and he's 30 some years old when he kills Diane. 36, 37. I'm going to have to say they're going to need to see what other places were on that dude's route. Actually, though, my initial impression before he was named, my initial impression was that more than likely um, he made a pass at Diane to some extent. And she rejected him? And she rejected it, whether it was, it was probably kind of blown out of proportion, probably. Now, I could be completely wrong. Uh, but I do feel like in that event, depending on where he was that day, sort of mentally, I feel like he could have just snapped, which is sort of what it, like what the result of her murder looks like, right? Somebody that like got really mad, right? And, you know, she could have very innocently laughed it off or whatever, and he could have taken it the wrong way. But that's kind of how I see this type of thing go down. And it said she was at the office by herself for this short amount of time. And so because she was there by herself, um, he stopped by. I have a feeling he might have had a crush on her or whatever. I don't really know. I think that 
So if somebody could say like, oh yeah, he, you know, he was constantly talking about her and he had a crush on her. I would say that it's more likely this is going to be like a snap type of situation. Um, If he liked it, uh, that could be what leads to Terry's death five years later. Um, It could also just be another situation where he, uh, made some sort of pass at Terry, which was completely inappropriate, but I mean, it happens, right? Yeah. And, uh, she rejected him and probably laughed at him. Right. Um, I feel like a lot of these guys, I don't, I have no idea what this guy looks like, but I feel like a lot of guys, I'll just say it that way. Um, like even guys that are pretty normal most of the time, uh, when a girl laughs at them, when a female laughs at them in the process of rejecting them, even if it's like a nervous type awkward laugh, I feel like that can be infuriating. Yeah. And I feel like that could lead to exactly what we're seeing here. Right. And it doesn't excuse it at all. Like it's terrible. It's just like bad communication skills. Um, on his part, really, and not, you know, you never know, like, if somebody's not picking up the correct social cues, I guess. Yeah. And, well, you know, when you're getting upset about something that doesn't really matter. Yeah. I, uh, so, interestingly, uh, it looks like Patty Tappendorf was murdered. So that would have been Clarence Tappendorf's. Sister, I don't know that for sure. Like in sitting here and looking at it, but I believe that I believe that's possible. That, um, hmm. murdered in 1975. Yeah, dear sister of Mark, Cheryl, Wasella, Gary, Keith, Kim. Daughter of Clarence. That's his daughter. Hmm. Daughter of Clarence and Joyce. Well, that's even weirder. So I don't, um, I don't know exactly where that leads. It looks like he has a, there's a Tappendorf on the sex offenders registry up there too. Huh. I don't know. So. Like a live one? mm, I don't know the answer to that. I don't think they have passed away people on there. Maybe they just haven't come off. Yeah. Well, so that's, yeah, that's my true crime news there. Uh, hmm. The daughter being uh, killed is pretty weird. So that came out like that was, that was like in um, October of last year. And okay. So moving into January, we wanted to cover some of the stuff that I had left off. And I guess to tell the story, you have anything else on these people right now? No. Okay. I guess to tell the story of uh, how this next one goes down, uh, we have to start at sort of what looks like the beginning. Uh, the beginning of this would have would have technically been on June seventh of nineteen eighty, and to this day, this serial killer is still uh, unidentified. And there is a strong suspicion of 
of who the suspects are surrounding this. And there's a lot of contradictory information that goes on. Uh, but the area that we're going to go to um, is Indiana and Ohio. And it's along Interstate I-70. So this was originally the I-70 killer, but the name has been changed over time by the media to be the I-70 Strangler. And the place that this all starts is in Hamilton County, Indiana. And even though I said June 7th, 1980, like where the first like crime is discovered is actually June 16th, 1980. So that's nine days later. Now, this is a weird one. And when I say that, uh, the Indianapolis Star, they covered this story right when it happened. But to this day, it is unknown how the first victim dies. And uh, you can find articles on newspaper.com and the Indianapolis Star. The first one that I pulled for this, I pulled a couple around the same time. They're all kind of mid to late June 1980. Uh, One's June 25th of 1980, and the other one is uh, June 28th. Uh, That's what I'm pulling from to tell you guys this story today. The first victim is a child named Michael Petrie. Now, I say child, and, and, and that is true, but that is not how he's treated over the years. Michael Petrie would have been 15 years old when he was last seen by his father on June the 7th of 1980. His father said that he was headed out to a movie at what was known as the Eastwood Theater, which is on the city's northeast side, and that he was going with his friend Kurt Bell. So Kurt Bell is a 13-year-old boy, and the two of them were together, and they went to – each went home to their, like, their own home. One, uh, Michael went to the Petrie home. Kurt went to the Bell home, and they changed their clothes to get ready to go out. Michael's father says that Michael went out to the Eastwood Theater, and the two went home to change clothes at their respective houses. But Kurt returned to – the Petrie home about 7.30 PM and Michael was already gone. What Michael Petrie was wearing when he disappeared was unclear, but his dad said that he saw his son at 6 PM and he was wearing a black t-shirt that had Bob Seger printed on the front and back. And he had white painter's pants on. Kurt said that he was going to change into a red Jersey shirt that said Indiana university or possibly Hoosiers across the front. Now, there's a a litany of sort of sightings of Michael, and he doesn't actually vanish right away. Although the date of last contact is listed as him being with his dad on June 7th, investigators tracked him for multiple days, and they were able to put him at an area known as Monument Circle, on June 11th, which would have been four days after his dad had reported him missing and five days before his body was found. He had been seen the previous evening in a parked car on Market Street at College Avenue. And sheriff's detectives appealed in the local newspapers all the way to the end of July 1980 for additional information 
from anyone who had seen Michael Petrie between late June uh, 10th and early June the 11th, he was seen walking north from the Monument Circle about 1 p.m. on June the 10th, and he had been wearing a black Bob Seeger t-shirt, but now he was wearing blue jeans. So he doesn't have the jersey on that Kurt thought he was wearing. He has the black t-shirt on that his dad said he was wearing, but he's no longer wearing the white painter's pants. He's wearing blue jeans. At Later in the day on June the 10th, around 7 p.m., Michael is seen sitting in the car with an unknown man. At this point, the Hamilton County Sheriff's detectives who were investigating where Michael had been said that they started to get different descriptions of the clothing he was wearing. And the 7 p.m. June 10th clothing that he had been seen in were white painter's pants and a red Indiana University jersey-style shirt. So they put out another description of him here, hoping that it might jog someone's memory. They said that Michael was 5 feet 7 inches tall. He weighed about 130 pounds. He had long brownish blonde hair and brown eyes, and he had been wearing blue tennis shoes. Now, the investigators at the time said that they were working with the Indiana State Police and Indianapolis police investigators, and they had been interviewing Michael's friends at Christmas Attics High School. Uh, basically, they had been interviewing all the boys from school and all the boys near his Southside neighborhood. So, for some reason, they go through this whole spiel. They actually have a burial, a memorial service and a burial, and immediately exhume his body to try and determine his cause of death. I don't know how far you got into this, but it's pretty wild. Um, what? Wait, what now? So, okay, on Saturday, June 28th, they had stuck this kid in the ground in a pauper's grave as being unidentified. Okay. They pull him back out of, he goes in the ground on June 20th. They pull him back out of the ground after a memorial service for him. And they then go to determine his cause of death. And and that's because of how he was found. That's where I'm getting with all of this. Okay. And so they held a memorial service for an unknown victim. No. They buried an unidentified victim, and then they held a memorial service for Michael Petrie. It's weird, right? But did they know his body had been found? They compared notes and they decided that it was probably his body. Okay. It's a little weird. Um, The reason it's a little weird is not by, like, happenstance. So... Do you know where Noblesville, Indiana is? Do I know where it's at? Yeah, like, do you, have you ever heard of Noblesville? Yes, Indiana? I've heard of it. Um, okay. I, I, I mean, I could point to it on a map. I got gotcha. you. Mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's sort of what I'm. That's sort of what I mean. Okay. So, all right, where this kid was supposedly last seen was the Eastwood Theater, right? And. So the Eastwood Theater, if I'm understanding everything correctly, is in Indianapolis. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So where his body ends up being found is not close to there at all. 
where he is found is 45 miles north of where he starts out. Okay. So Indianapolis itself is in, I believe, Marion County. He's found in Hamilton County. If, if you go like looking for this, here's what the wiki says about him. It's not very long. It says that Michael Petrie, 15, was discovered naked on June 16, 1980. Despite his young age, he was a male prostitute who spent most of his time around Indianapolis's gay bars. He was reported missing on June 7th, but three days later, he was observed in different parts of the city riding along in a stranger's car. The cause of death was established as strangulation. No traces of drugs or alcohol were found in his blood. I don't know when they establish the strangulation part of this. Because I also want to point out that they're saying that he was a prostitute, but we all know that at the age of 15, that's not possible. Yeah. He was a victim of child abuse. Yeah, yeah. This kid is definitely... Um, he is a child who's being abused. I agree completely. So when I go and I pull up the Indianapolis Star to get a little bit better coverage, um, I, I go back to this June 25th, 1980 article, and they are talking about trying to determine his cause of death. And, and I'm pulling from an article that doesn't have – it's just Indianapolis Star staff is what it has on it. It says that there are telephone calls going back and forth between – the medical examiner, the state police, and the local police, and that everything had turned out toxicity-wise to be negative. Uh, Dr. Rosemary Alstead, who's an associate of the, someone named Heyman at an Indianapolis laboratory, uh, they don't clarify who Heyman is here, by the way, had telephoned in a request specifically asking that James Forbes, who's a state police chemist, determine if there were drugs in this kid's body. So you got police arguing with police and pathologists are arguing with pathologists here. And James Forbes tells everybody, you're not going to get anywhere in this case if we can't get our acts together. But ultimately, they describe him as being found floating face down in a ditch June the 15th with such force from the throw of throwing him down into this ditch that indentation marks were left from his body in the mud. And overall, the police at the time said it looked like a professional job. Uh, they specifically said you don't just find nude bodies floating down the ditch. Uh, the youth was dead when put into the ditch, and he had been dead for two to five days when discovered by a Noblesville farmer. The body was not mutilated. And they sort of run through this list of things and they say he could have been choked to death. He could have been uh, just OD'd, but the whole case had left the police puzzled. So they take fingerprints from the Petrie's home. Basically, they go over to where Michael lived and they take fingerprints from around his room. And this is how they end up identifying him. But I can't find anywhere in, like, the listed information where it's confirmed he is strangled to death. In fact, most of the listings I find related to Michael, 
indicate that like there's no official cause of death. And I'll give you an example of of kind of how some of this goes over time. Because this is not this is like the first in a long string of things that are happening. Michael Petrie's where our story starts. But somehow I don't know if that's the case. Like overall, if he's the actual first victim or just the first victim that makes sense. I found multiple articles that we're going to get into in this series where I think there might be more victims outside of this. But I want to run down while we're here today after Michael Petrie, kind of what happens next. Maurice Taylor, who's 23 years old, his corpse is found shirtless in July of 1982 in what's known as Weasel Creek, which is also in rural Hamilton County. This is going to be confusing for a second, but where he's found is outside of Atlanta. Atlanta is not the city. It is a town in Hamilton County, Indiana. The population at this time would have been around 400 people. His cause of death could not be definitively established, but again, it is mentioned that it was possible he had been strangled. Taylor was listed as being, and and it'll say homeless in one place, the wiki says vagrant, as listed as being living in the boiler room of an apartment complex somewhere in Indianapolis. And due to financial difficulties, he was going around to local bars gay bars, and he was offering sexual services for money. He is unidentified for eight months. So basically into 1983, Maurice Taylor is unidentified. And the reason he's unidentified is his mother had been uh, detained in a mental hospital. So she did not know to file a missing persons report or was unable to file a missing persons report for him. So we've got Michael Petrie, and then we've got Maurice Taylor. Next up, we have a 14-year-old boy who's an eighth grader. His name is Devoid Lee Baker. And Devoid is found semi-nude near a river in the same area in Hamilton County. While investigating his death, police locate witnesses who stated that Baker was last seen on the evening of October the 2nd in downtown Indianapolis, getting into a blue van that was driven by a young white man with a bushy mustache. The boy's parents told police that he had been riding his bike into the city center on the evening of his disappearance, and he had called home at 10.30 p.m. to inform them that he was going to be late because he wanted to go to the movies. This statement concerned Devoid's parents, who knew that he had no pocket money on him. It was later established that Devoid and a 16-year-old friend had been cruising the Indianapolis gay bars for the last three months. And according to this friend, he and Baker had been prostituting themselves for $20 to $25 a night. Due to several differences in comparison with other victims— Devoid is the youngest at 14. He is also the only black victim. For a period of time, Devoid Baker's homicide is considered to be unrelated. So what happens when Devoid Baker is found, even though they say 
It's unrelated. Police in Indianapolis, working with Marion County and Hamilton County, they start to realize they've got something bigger on their hands. And this is a new thing for them in terms of putting together a task force to try and figure out what is happening. So it ends up taking them about nine more months from the time that Devoid Baker is found on October the 3rd until uh, early uh, May of 1983 when they really start to realize that there's probably something really serious to be digging into. And by the time that happens, we end up with about six more homicides that go into their initial task force list. I'm going to go down this path for a second. Do you remember much about this time period from your research perspective? Because I personally don't remember a lot about this time. Maybe not for the same. I, I don't know if it's for the same reason um, as you, though, because... I sort of researching something else, and then this kind of fell in my lap. And I just was talking kind of generally about satanic panic. I think this is a little early for it. That's what I was going to ask you. Yeah, because satanic panic doesn't happen until even well, like the early 90s. They actually start this task force after a different murder in here. And I went and hunted this down to see what they were looking at. Now, they start off looking at a death of a guy named Michael Riley. And then they put Michael Petrie, Maurice Taylor, Devoid Baker, John Roach, and Daniel McNeevy all on a list with a guy named Dennis Broadstreet. And this is interesting to me because I'm looking at it from the perspective of cops in 1983. Now, Michael Riley, he's actually found in Hancock County. Michael Petrie, we know, is in Hamilton County. Dennis Brochie is in Northern Marion County. Maurice Taylor is also in Hamilton County. Devoid Baker is in Hamilton County. John Roach is in Putnam County. And Daniel McNeevy is in Hendricks County. And I realized something looking at all of this. They're not looking at this real seriously. They're only looking at it because enough people have asked questions. Do you know what I mean when I say this, that? All like this particular death. The like task force, the task force deaths that I just listed off there. The, I would say that you're, yeah, you're right. Um, they're not paying attention to these guys. No, not even a little bit. Not even a little bit. And they're they're calling these uh, children prostitutes, and it's reflected in the investigation. Now, this guy is not a child. He's 26 or 27. And um, But I'm just saying, you're right. They're not. They are taking all of it in stride. Now, why do you think that is? I Okay. So this is my conclusion. You want my conclusion? Yeah, sure. Because they're gay. Well, but also, okay, yes, you're right. And, okay, so the 80s were a completely different time. I don't think anybody would argue with that. I agree. Um, however, it's also a situation where at first, now this is not 
2023 or 2024 looking back, okay, this is as it's happening. Remember that uh, a youngish, 20-ish to, you know, middle-aged-ish man is the most invulnerable uh, person victim-wise, right? Yeah. And so at first, you know, it's not just necessarily – I I do think that in the 80s it would have been um, a lot of sort of homophobic tendencies – because that's how it was then, right? It it wasn't okay. It's just how it was. But I also think that, like, a lot of male cops would sort of be like, well, they walk themselves into something, like, even without that bias, right? Yeah, and there's a point in time I would have thought you were crazy for saying that. But I will tell you now, like, after years of doing this, you're totally right. What What would you think I was crazy for saying what? Well, I would think like I would think that cops would take children disappearing and being murdered seriously. No, they're calling they're calling them prostitutes. I know, I know, but like I can like I and I understand that with hindsight and being able to look over at a quick wiki article, you can just say that and like that's a thing. But like they were not prostitutes; these were high school students. They were going to school. Um, Delvoid Baker was a middle school student. Right. You're a hundred percent right. And there's no way that that child was a prostitute. I'm sorry. Um, I realize that it's out there like that. And that, I mean, the connotation associated with, uh, especially, um, with Michael Petrie and Del, Delvoid Baker, uh, they were treated as less than because Absolutely. of their habits. And it is compl- it doesn't even cross anybody's mind that these are just children. Even even to this day, the information is that they were prostitutes. They they weren't prostitutes. It, it's not possible for a 14 or 15 year old boy to be a prostitute because they cannot consent. And the fact that we still haven't like realize that now right yeah uh and say that you know they were a victim of child abuse uh it it's telling to me but i have to say without all the experience that i've accumulated and all the years that we've been doing uh this type of research i wouldn't readily see the difference either and so that's why i try to point it out as opposed to you know just not point it out and let it lie because that's a very important distinction. I feel like is not made nearly enough, but I can see where now. Okay. The 14 and 15 year old that's concerned. That should have been a concern. Some of these older men, when they were initially the ones that were reported missing, right. Uh, as opposed to their body was found. The ones that were reported missing, I can see where initially, for whatever reason, whether it was because they looked down upon what they were doing or whether they felt like, hey, this is a, you know, a young man who is, you know, for the most part, invulnerable to becoming a victim. 
we're not going to go disrupt his life just because he hadn't called his mom or whatever, right? I can sort of see that mentality, but at the same time, and I I don't know, in the 80s, like, I I don't have a good feel for this point in time. Uh, We have to keep in mind, there was no such thing as a cell phone, right? Right. Uh, There was no electronic communication. Basically, we're talking pay phones and landlines, right? Yeah. It seems like if you've got a family member or a roommate or, you know, whoever is doing this reporting, it seems like it's going to be out of the ordinary enough to have to deal with the police, right? Yeah. You're not going to just do it on a whim, right? And so... I saw, um, in fact, there's a private investigator that gets involved a little later on with some of the cases. But in some of these situations, like what we're starting to talk about here with these victims, like the police were saying, like, we're not even going to do anything for 30 days. And then it goes over to like the missing persons bureau. This is in Indianapolis. And so... And that's why the private investigator gets involved because these families who like, you know, they're seeing something wrong. They're not hearing from their loved one and they're saying, hey, this isn't right, you know, um, and they, their only choice was to hire a private investigator because police aren't going to do anything at all until 30 days have passed. And if the person is still missing, then they turn it over to like a different division. That is startling, isn't it? It is startling. Yeah, it becomes a whole new investigation after 30 days and there's nothing you can do about it. And you have dead bodies and you have missing people and nobody seems to be taking it that seriously. And I get it, but like at the same time I'm going, yeah, but they took the initiative to call the police, right? Yeah. And so they they were seeing something and saying something and, and we wonder and like, these kids come from all walks of life. There are poor kids in here. There are kids with families, kids without families. There's white kids. There's black kids. It's very interesting to me to see how all of this was handled. And I tried to look at it. The reason I ask you about satanic panic is because, one, I tried to look at that and see where we were in time. Now, most of what I know about satanic panic is really related to the book Michelle Remembers. And that's a 1980 book. But it really kind of was slowly spilling out over the eighties. And I don't think Indianapolis would be the great hub of understanding satanic panic in 1982 and 1983. However, and this is how I want to conclude the first episode of this. I did come across something which I've shared with you here. I, I came across something that was baffling to me. This comes out of the Indianapolis Star, and it's on Thursday, June 3rd, 1982. So it's right in the middle of this ramping up. It's about a year ahead of the loosely formed task force that's going to come along. And I'm saying this all sort of sarcastically, but I'm saying it that way because I started to notice a pattern where in some instances, serial murderers are known very early on. And in some of them, they're never known. And in some of them, they arrest the guy. And specifically who I'm thinking of, like while I'm talking, it's Gary Ridgeway. Like basically 
they arrest a guy that like for 25 years, they've actually had his DNA because they like were wondering if it was him 25 years ago or whatever. And this case, I realized it just derails itself. So this is John. How do you say that name? Shanessi? S-H-A-U-G-H-N-E-S-S-Y. Sure. I mean, I'm I'm not sure. sure. Um, He's writing for the Indianapolis Star right in the middle of all this. And this guy that he's writing about is originally on the task force list. We'll we'll get into more of of why he's not later. Here's the headline uh, from page 20. It's not a headline. It's the, the, here's the article's title. Death linked to worship of Satan. And it says the death of a 27-year-old Indianapolis man may have been associated with his worship of Satan, police said Wednesday. The body of Dennis Bratzi, who's from the 100 block of West St. Clair Street, was found Tuesday in high weeds in the 9400 block of North River Road. There were no visible signs of violence. There were blood stains on Brotsky's head, however, and police learned Wednesday that human or animal blood is poured on cult members as part of a satanic ritual. Marion County Sheriff's Captain Jerome Hobbs said he worships Satan. A lot of times there's a struggle to see who will be the leader of these groups. They call them warlocks or witches. They give each other potions to try to get power over each other that may have something to do with this death. Some of the potions are poisonous and the formulas for making them are believed to be handed down from generation to generation, said the police. Hubs said that tests being performed should reveal what, if any, drugs or chemicals were in Brodsky's body. The test won't be completed for six to eight weeks. Police found evidence in, in Dennis's downtown apartment to support their theory. He had Jesus on a cross turned upside down with two candles on either side of the cross, Hubs said. It was strange in that apartment. Satanic paraphernalia all over the place. Police learned that Brodsky belonged to a Satan-worshipping cult, Hub said. If he was involved in this, I'm sure there are others as well. That's why it's a cult. It's not a cult of one. Police believe that a five-point star amateurishly tattooed on the back of Brodsky's left hand was a satanic mark. They also find the initials A-N on his right shoulder. The letters were part of the word S-A-T-A-N, Satan, that also had been tattooed by an amateur. Hub said the first three letters were faint, suggesting to police that Brodsky had tried to remove the word. I know that all of this sounds strange, but it's all we have to go on right now, said Hubs. Okay. Is that murder tied back in? This is the people that are in charge of this task force. Oh, they are? This sheriff is in charge of the I-70 Strangler Task Force. Okay. Um, yeah, so, so... So he's originally tied to this task force. And, okay, so that the article I just read is from June 3rd of 1982. I don't think that satanic panic would be going. That's not actually um, what they're describing to me, isn't satanic panic. That's actual like evidence that he may have possibly been part of a cult. Right. Well, I'm look, I'm going down this path as I talk to you because if it's, 
if it's not satanic panic, then this might actually be a ritual murder of some kind. For, for some reason, though, five days later, they link this death to everything we were just talking about, and the bodies start to stack up. So it is linked. Well, here's what this says, and, and I'm, and I'm going to read this, and then we're going to have to like wrap up this episode and come back because I want to kick off the, the next episode with a completely different take on this. So a year later, almost to the day, they lay out in the Indianapolis news that, and this is just the staff talking, they don't have a lot of bylines attached. They lay out that a task force is probing deaths. That's the title of this front page article, page one of the Indianapolis news, Tuesday, June 7th, 1983. A quote, sort of loose task force, end quote, has developed among police officers investigating the death of Michael Riley, 22, and possible links with the deaths of six other young men in central Indiana. Riley's body was found in a Hancock County ditch on Sunday. So we're backing up to June 5th, 1983. The Indianapolis man had been missing for 10 days and police suspect he was murdered. Police are investigating links between his death and other victims. Dates and locations of their discovery are below. Michael Petrie, 15, June 16th, 1980, in Hamilton County. Dennis Brodsky, who we were just talking about, 27, June 1st, 1982, in Northern Marion County. Maurice Taylor, 23, July 21st of 1982, in Hamilton County. Devoid Baker, 14, October 3rd, 1982, in Hamilton County. John Roach, 21. December 28th of 1982 in Putnam County and Daniel McNeve, 22, May 9th, 1983 in Hendricks County. Lieutenant Dick Russell of the Hamilton County Sheriff's Department said, we're hoping that if we can sit down, trade names of people we interview and see if the victims came from the same area, we can know if we're focusing in on the right area. I think there are some similarities you can't overlook, said Hancock County Sheriff Nick Gulling. While acknowledging those similarities, police also pointed out clear differences in bodies found in Hancock, Hamilton, and Marion counties, and those found in Hendricks and Putnam counties. Roach and McNeevy died of multiple stab wounds, said State Police Sergeant Jack Hamlin. We're seeing two different types of murders, said Russell, who is working full-time on the Taylor and Petrie cases. We don't have causes of death. At some point in time, you would hope they would look at all this and go, what is happening to all these young men? Because now we're getting to this pile of people who fall into that category with the exception of a couple of the younger ones. They fall into that category where they're young men that are expected to go missing, I guess. Would that be how you would define it? No. Or if, they're, if, they're, if they've gone missing, they're not vulnerable? Um, I... I don't, yeah, I mean, maybe. Uh, they're invulnerable in that, yeah, they, they're not expected to go missing. It's just like they're not going to be victimized. So when they are, isn't that like a time that it should be taken more seriously, not less, when the bodies start piling up? I think that um, 
Well, yeah, it is a time it should be taken more seriously. The problem is that it takes a little bit because, like, we're looking at this in hindsight and they're seeing it straight on, right? The real-time aspect. And so because of that, and this is really bad, but I don't even think I could tell you, like, if there were bodies piling up, like, right this second somewhere. You you know what I mean? Yeah. It's so much easier to look back on it. And this is such a confusing uh, situation anyway. Um, So it's confusing now in 2024, right? Yeah. So if it's confusing now, I think that it really could have just been a lot of static. Now, when I say that, this is, I, I want to be clear because it's almost like this, anytime I make a definitive statement, it's got to slap me in the face. But like uh, these men, and in some cases children, they were victimized. It doesn't change the fact that they were still part of that invulnerable victim uh, category, right? Yeah. The thing that brings that back around is the fact that the invulnerability is uh, taken away or is rendered, you know, null in some cases. And that's anytime there's some sort of like uh, contact, uh, personal contact. Yeah, I understand what you're saying. You're saying like, if, if you're killed by a known quantity to you, that is removed? Correct. Like any, any man who is considered to be, because I feel like, I mean, I guess there could be some invulnerable women. An invulnerable man uh, immediately loses that invulnerability anytime somebody has access to them in a way that, like, they don't necessarily have to be victimized, Right. Well, so when I look at when I started looking at this case, um, it starts with the I seventy strangler. We have a we still have a stack of bodies to go through, and I'm going to bring up uh, in the next episode one of the reasons that I think that that happens. Uh, and this series is going to go on for a couple more episodes till we get to some pretty interesting. Uh, as far as the timeline on all of this goes, we get to some some pretty interesting revelations and then we get a big stop in time with this particular killer. And the reference here to prostitute is a, it's a literal reference to a charge. And that is suspicion of prostitution, soliciting prostitution. We're not, we're not being derogatory towards sex workers. We're trying to frame it from how the police would have been looking at it. And that is that these people were potentially, involved in something that would in, in the word prostitute would be used. Thank you so much for joining us today. We'll see you next time. So I'm going to tell you guys uh, a few things about some of the folks who are helping sponsor our show. Now, Labrati Creations sponsors our show, and you can always use the 
the crime excess code there. Um, you can also just message them uh, at uh, Laborati Creations, and they will generally do something for the people who come from True Crime Excess. They were our very first sponsor. They've done a lot for the show, and that code is CRIMEXCESS at LaboratiCreations.com. The first new advertisers that we have, and I've, I've selected all of these guys. I've selected all of these advertisers. So the very first one is Cure. Now, I'm going to tell you guys about this, uh, about Cure as being one of our sponsors. If you're an athlete, you know that proper hydration is key to peak performance. But plain water can be boring, and sports drinks can be filled with artificial ingredients and added sugars. That's why we love Cure. It's a clean and effective way to stay hydrated and perform at your best. I use it late in the day when I switch out of caffeine mode. Specifically, when I hit the pool or I go play tennis with my wife, I use Cure to help me stay hydrated. It helps me recover after a long day. Now, you guys may not know this, but I build things. Right now, I've been building several structures on our property out here. Among those is a new podcast studio space for myself. I do a lot of that work at night and into the wee hours, and I always have some Cure with me to go into my aluminum water bottle Hydration is not just about filling up my aluminum bottle with water. Cure Hydration is an oral rehydration solution that contains the perfect balance of electrolytes and glucose to help your body absorb water and rehydrate quickly. Whether I'm building things or putting the podcast together or chasing these dogs that you sometimes hear in my studio up and down the trails to get them worn out, Cure Hydration is the way that I choose to go. Cure Hydration is an oral rehydration solution, or an ORS, that contains the perfect balance of electrolytes and glucose to help your body absorb water and to rehydrate quickly. The formula is made with all natural ingredients like coconut water powder and pink Himalayan salt. It's free from artificial flavors, from sweeteners, and preservatives. Cure Hydration is vegan, gluten-free, and non-GMO, making it a great option for anyone with dietary restrictions or preferences. The packets are convenient and easy to use. You just mix them with your water and you drink. They're perfect for on the go. They're perfect for travel. And anytime you need a quick and effective hydration boost, ready to combat dehydration, then you try Cure today and feel the difference for yourself. You can use code TRUECRIMEXCESS for 20% off your order. That's T-R-U-E-C-R-I-M-E-XS. I have a link that I'm putting in the most recent episode show notes and true crime access will get you 20% off. Our second sponsor for the show today is Laird. Now Laird has a list of things that they want me to tell you about They have better ingredients with amazing taste and functional benefits. They have a superfood creamer crafted from the highest quality, all natural real food ingredients all Laird products are sustainably sourced and thoroughly tested to ensure that you're incorporating the cleanest, finest fuel into your routine. They have all natural whole food ingredients, and they contain naturally occurring MCTs made from coconut oil. There's no artificial flavors, there's no colors or additives, and there's no sugar from highly refined corn syrup. They want me to talk about my love of coffee, but the truth is I don't do much with coffee. But let me tell you someone who does. My wife has to have a cup of coffee every day. Now, I've fallen off recently, but one of the big things that I've done since the beginning of our relationship 
is she used to go and get a Starbucks every morning. I have substituted that out by always trying to make her coffee. It's not going to be every single day of time from when I met her, but for the most part, almost every day, I make her coffee. I put her creamers together and I make sure that she has a good way to start her day. So with Laird, he started experimenting with his morning ritual almost two decades ago. He found that when he started adding fats to his morning cup, like coconut oil, he had amazing energy throughout the rest of his day. He gradually perfected this recipe for an epic cup of fuel, and he began sharing it with his friends in the surf community. I'm an ocean guy, so I saw this item and I was like, okay, we're going to try this one out. Are you ready to feel more energized, more focused, and supported? Go to LairdSuperfood.com and add nourishing plant-based foods to fuel you from sunrise to sunset. And you can use our promo code at checkout to save 15% off your purchase today. Our offer code for this for Laird is going to be TrueCrimeXS. Pretty much everywhere except for Labrador Creations, if you use True Crime XS, that will get you, uh, at Laird, it'll get you 15% off. At some of the other places, it'll get you 20% off. Uh, I'm going to tell you about two more uh, sponsors today. So the first one is, uh, the third one is Liquid IV. So let's talk about the real reasons that you need to hydrate. Late night TV binging, back-to-back Zoom meetings, going on a walk with your friends. Everyday hydration is not just for high-energy athletic endeavors. Liquid IV is the number one powdered hydration brand in America. It's now available in sugar-free. This is years in the making. But Hydration Multiplier Sugar-Free uses a proprietary zero-sugar hydration solution with no artificial sweeteners. It's got three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, but it's also got eight vitamins and nutrients for everyday wellness. Liquid IV hydrates two times faster than water alone. Keep your daily routine exciting with three new flavors. They've got white peach, green grape, and lemon lime. I love all of these flavors, but I think that my favorite is probably the green grape. Uh, White peach I use as a secondary flavor and lemon lime I leave here for my kids and my kids and my wife. Uh, Liquid IV believes that equitable access to clean and abundant water is the foundation of a healthier world. They also partner with leading organizations to fund and foster innovative solutions that help communities protect both their water and their futures. To date, Liquid IV has donated over 39 million servings in 50 plus countries around the world. You can get 20% off when you grab your Liquid IV Hydration Multiplier sugar-free or any other variant at liquidiv.com and use code TrueCrimeXS at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code TrueCrimeXS at liquidiv.com. And the last sponsor I want to tell you about is Zencaster. We are part of Zencaster's creative network. We've been using Zencaster since about midway into our first season. Uh, Meg and I experimented with a lot of different ways to put the podcast together. And the truth is Zencaster was an, an integral ingredient to us being able to bring you this show. 
it's so easy. It's now super easy. You can record a podcast with Zencaster. You can log in using your browser and you start recording a high quality podcast right away. You can record studio quality sound and up to 4K video with your guests. You get to feel a sense of Zen knowing that Zencaster's multi-layered backups ensure you will always have your recordings in the highest quality, even if the connection is unstable. You sound your best. I mean, if you've ever worried about what you sound like, Zencaster's post-production process makes you sound buttery smooth. It automatically removes those ums and ahs in your recordings. It removes those awkward pauses and conversation too. You can set the right podcast loudness and levels while reducing background noise with a click of a button. That's how you don't hear my dogs every uh, second of every episode. Zencaster is all in one. If you've thought about podcasting before and realized that you need a lot of different tools and services, those days are now over. With Zencaster's all-in-one podcasting platform, you can create your podcast all in one place, and you can distribute to Spotify, Apple, and other ma major destinations. Just go to Zencaster.com slash pricing and use my code TrueCrimeXS, and you're going to get 30% off your first month of any Zencaster paid plan. You can also check out the other plans they have available. I want you to have the same easy experiences that I do for all my podcasting and content needs. So Zencaster.com slash pricing. The offer code is true crime XS. And it's time for you to share your story today. Uh, we are also adding new era as a uh, sponsor for the show. New Era Cap is a headwear and apparel brand founded in 1920 in Buffalo, New York. Now, uh, I actually have some experience with New Era Caps. My dad and I have been through multiple iterations of baseball caps through the years. We collect different styles, different eras, and now my teenager has started his own cap collection and has several New Eras as the centerpieces. Our favorite teams may not be the same, but our outfits are all topped with the same new era ball caps. Uh, we love the quality and the ability to wear what the players are wearing. Not to mention new era is the leading headwear manufacturer with quality licensed products. You can support your favorite college or pro team in style from the official headwear provider for the MLB, NFL, and NBA. You can get a stylish accessory for your everyday ensemble and support True Crime Excess. Just shop the official headwear and get 15% off when you go to neweracap.com. That's N-E-W-E-R-A-C-A-P.com slash TrueCrimeXS. You can also use the code TrueCrimeXS at checkout. That's it. That's all you have to do. And that's 15% off your order using the promo code TrueCrimeXS.